book of Job, it's a profound and very unique book in the Bible for lots of reasons. The story is set in a very obscure land that's far away from Israel, Uz. The main character, Job, he's not even an Israelite. And the author, who's anonymous, doesn't even set the story in any clear period of ancient history. This all seems intentional, though. It's like the author doesn't want us to be distracted by historical questions, but rather to focus simply on the story of Job and on the questions raised by his experience of suffering. The book of Job has a very clear literary design. It opens and closes with a short narrative prologue and then an epilogue. And then the central body of the book is dense Hebrew poetry, representing conversations between Job and four dialogue partners called the Friends. These conversations are then concluded by a series of poetic speeches given by God to Job. Let's dive in and we'll just see how it works together. The prologue introduces us to Job and we're told that he's a blameless, upright man who honors God. He's a super good guy. And then all of a sudden, we're transported into the heavenly realms, and God is holding court with his staff team. It's a very common image in the Old Testament describing how God runs the world. And among the heavenly beings is a figure called the Satan, which in Hebrew means the accuser or the prosecutor. And it's like we're watching a court scene. God presents Job as a truly righteous man. And then the accuser challenges God's policy of rewarding righteous people like Job. He says, the only reason Job obeys you is because you bless him with prosperity. Let Job suffer. Then we'll see how righteous he actually is. And then God agrees to let the accuser inflict suffering on Job. Now, it's at this point in the story that most of us go, what? Why did God do that? And then we assume that this book is going to answer that question, why God allows good people to suffer. But as you read on, the book doesn't answer that question. Nothing in the book ever answers that question. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, if you're reading along in our one-year Bibles, you started Job this week. Lucky you. Lucky you. Isn't it great? What a lovely book to read. Um, I actually really love the book of Job. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. There's a lot of rich things going on. But the problem is, when you're reading it through these one-year Bibles, you're reading like one chapter at a time. And this is a book that really does not lend itself well to being read that way. Because it's meant to be read straight through all in one sitting. Because most of the book is a conversation happening between five different people. And when you're reading just one chapter at a time, you forget who's speaking or what they're doing. But it's also not a book that lends itself well to like long, in-depth Bible studies. Mostly because you're miserable while you're doing it, and then you're suffering along with Job the whole way. <laughs> but also because the book itself is actually very simple. It's a very simple book. The message is extremely simple. You just can't spin all that much time studying it, because if you do, you're searching for things that aren't there, which is why I can preach on the whole book in one week. So we turn to Job when we want answers because we're suffering or because someone that we know is suffering, and we want to know why. And specifically, we turn to it when we want to know why good people are suffering. We don't care if the bad people are suffering, right? Like, that's fine. They can suffer. It's okay. Cowboys fans suffer all day long. We're good. We want to know why God lets good people like the Texans fans suffer. That's, 
and Lord knows they're suffering plenty, right? We want answers to that question, and it's a big question, and, and we are not the only ones asking that question either. Everyone wants to know why bad things happen to good people, whether you're religious or not. And in fact, there are a whole lot of people out there who are not religious specifically because of that question, right? It's called the problem of evil. If, if God is really as good as he says he is, if he's as powerful as he says he is, if he knows all the things he says he knows, and if he loves us like he says he does, shouldn't he then do something about all the good people who are suffering? It's a really good question. And so we read Job because it seems like that's the book we should read. And then we get really confused because there's no answers in there. And it even ends on this weird note where like God gives Job like a new model wife and children, right? Like, I know I killed the old ones, Job, but here, these are new and improved. Go for it, right? It just doesn't line up. With, with what we think about who God is and how he's supposed to work. But, but here's the thing. That whole problem of evil, that whole question of, of demanding God answer us when we ask why he allows good people to suffer, the problem with that is when you ask that question, you are assuming that God is accountable to you. You're assuming that God owes you an answer. And that's just not the way it works. God does not owe you answers. And in fact, the book of Job is not a book about suffering. When we look at it that way, we're missing the point. And when we ask that question, we're missing the point. God's not accountable to us. We are accountable to God. We are the ones who will have to stand before God one day and give an accounting of how we've lived our lives. We owe God answers, not the other way around. And, you know, it stands to reason that, that if God is the creator of the universe, if God didn't make just this planet and this star, but all the stars you see in the night sky, all those galaxies you see in the new pictures from NASA, each one with hundreds of billions of stars and hundreds of billions of planets, and all the things that are involved to make those things exist and orbit each other, if God did all of that, it stands to reason that the, the policies behind the way he runs the world are so complex and so far beyond our ability to comprehend that we wouldn't understand God's answer to that question even if he gave it to us. We want answers. And the problem is, it's actually kind of foolish to think that we would even understand the answer God would give us to some of these questions. The world we live in is far more complex than we really understand. And there's plenty of examples from our own history that prove it, that prove that, that even, even if you ignore all the rest of creation out there and just focus on this one place where we live, it is more complex than we really and truly understand. Do you know how mongooses were introduced to Hawaii? People who owned sugarcane plantations wanted something to kill off all the rats that were eating the sugarcane, sugar so they bought a bunch of mongooses and turned them loose in the fields, right? Because what could go wrong? But it turns out that in Hawaii, there are no native ground-dwelling predators. And so all the native birds in those islands lay their eggs on the ground, and they don't bother to protect their nests because nothing eats them. And it also turns out that a mongoose would rather eat a bird egg than a rat, and who can blame them? So they let all these mongooses loose, and they ate all the bird eggs and killed off all the birds, and the rats they ignored. 
the world was more complex than they understood. And what seemed like an obvious solution failed because they did not understand what they were really dealing with. I'll give you another example. When we lived in Dallas, we would go to the George Bush Library from time to time because it's right there on the SMU campus. And there's an interactive exhibit in that library. Um, and, and what it is, is it's, it's based on his decision to invade Iraq. And all of us who were alive back then probably had really strong opinions on whether that was the, good, the right choice or not, right? I mean, it's not a hot-button issue anymore, but all of us who were there can remember thinking very strongly whether he made the right call or not. And the thing is, so you go into this exhibit, right, and you're given all the information he had. So you're given all of, all of the evidence that, that suggests that there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and you're given all of those reports. And then you're given all of the briefings that detail, like, hey, here's, here's the consequences if you invade, what might happen, and here's what, what might happen if you don't invade, and what you're risking if you don't do this. And then you have to make the choice. My friends, I still don't know what I would do. <laughs> it's a difficult decision when you're looking at everything he was given. And we do this all the time with, with, with people in positions of power, right? We love to, to tell them what they should have been doing the whole time. And the problem is, so often we don't actually understand all the things they have to consider. I mean, that's not a perfect metaphor because people who are elected, right, are actually accountable to us. They do actually owe us answers. But you begin to understand, just, just even on a human scale, the complexity of the world we live in is much bigger than we tend to realize. My daughter loves ice cream, right, because she's a two-year-old, and what two-year-old doesn't love ice cream? And I love to give her ice cream. It's awesome, right? You give her the bowl, she takes the first bite and does a little happy dance. It's great, Right? I would love to give her ice cream every single time she asks for it. I really would. It's, it's incredible. Every parent would, right? You love seeing your children react that way to something. You love making them happy and giving them joy. But if I, gave, if I had been giving her ice cream every time she asked for it, she would already be diabetic. It would be bad. Right? She asks for it every day. I can't do that. So I tell her no most of the time when she asks for ice cream, but I can't explain to her that, well, I'm saying this because really you don't need that much sugar. It's not good for you. You should eat some vegetables instead. I can't tell her that. I mean, I can, but she won't know what I'm saying. She won't understand the concept of nutrition. So she just has to suffer sometimes with no ice cream. Throughout her whole first week of daycare, when I would get her out of the car to, to take her in, the first thing she would say to me is, Daddy, please take me home. Right? And then I would get in the car and quietly weep on my way to work, you know. <laughs> now, I can't explain to her in that moment that, you know, you know, sweetie, actually every day, at the end of the day, the daycare workers tell me you had a great day, you were having fun and playing, and, and really, since I have to work all day, I can't pay attention to you. This is better for you. You're getting to play. You're getting to read. You're doing all these. You're not, you're not being ignored all day long. This is so much better for everyone. I can't tell her that. She won't understand it. So in that moment, she's suffering a bit. And I just have to let her suffer. Because the world is more complex than she understands. So Job. It's a long book, and I'm preaching on the whole thing, but I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because I love you and I'm merciful. <laughs> I am, however, going to read the entire first chapter because this sets up the background for everything else that's going to happen, right? So Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. 
He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So Job handled that better than we would have. And then the scene shifts back to Satan and God talking. And Satan says, oh, I'm not done yet, God. Let me, look, I can, I can prove to you that this guy will sin if we just put him in a tough enough spot. So he goes back and he does worse things. And eventually we get to this point in chapter 3 where Job is, is finally beginning to break down. So in chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it and no light shine on it. Right? In other words, it would be better if I'd never been born at all. Right? And then Job's friends come. And you might think that they would be there to comfort him, but actually what they turn out to be there to do is to tell him that he deserved all this. Right? Great friends, wonderful folks. But their whole thing and what they will spend most of the book doing is trying to explain to Job that, listen, bad things only happen to people who deserve them. So this is one of Job's friends speaking in chapter 4, verse 7. Consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. 
At the blast of his anger, they are no more. Just a real fun-loving bunch. Great guys. So most of the book consists of Job's friends talking to him and trying to convince him over and over again that, listen, bad things only happen to bad people. If all this happened to you, you must have done something to deserve it. And Job, every time, replies with a long, extended version of, no, I'm telling you, I'm innocent, I've done nothing to deserve this, and they go back and forth. Until eventually, his friends run out of things to say, and Job demands an audience with God. He demands that he get a chance to, to deliver his complaint directly to God, and poor Job gets, gets exactly what he wants. So in chapter 38, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Right? You should be shaking in fear at that moment. right? If God ever says that to you, run. <laughs> Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? And when I said, this far you may come and no further? Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. And then skipping ahead to verse 32. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades and can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom or who gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? All this beautiful, profound poetry to say to Job, Job, were you there when I made all this? Were you there when I created everything that, that's around you and designed how it's going to work? No? Then shut up. It is not a satisfying answer. It's not the answer we want. So first, let's get something clear right off the bat. Job's not a real person. This is not a story of actual historical events, so you don't need to worry that one day God will decide to test you by letting Satan take all your fun things away. It doesn't work like that. You have nothing to fear, right? This is, this is ancient philosophy. This is a thought experiment. This is really a parable, just like all the parables that Jesus tells in the Gospels where he makes up a story to communicate a really profound truth about how God works. That's what Job is. It's all a parable. Now, we struggle with this because we read it looking for answers about why God allows suffering. But the thing is, the book of Job is not about Job, and the book of Job is not about suffering. The book is about God, and it is about the reasons for righteousness. And it's about wisdom. Right? Job's three friends think that they are really wise and intelligent. They spend 
the whole book trying to explain the reasons for Job's suffering. And what does God say when he finally talks? Who is this who obscures my plans with words without knowledge? In other words, who let these dumb people talk? They don't know what they're saying. They've got no clue. God dismisses all of their like 30 chapters of so-called wisdom with one sentence. And says, nope, you've been wrong about everything. Only God is wise. So if you're reading Job to try and figure out why God acts the way he does, you're going to be really disappointed. Because God is going to answer you the same way he answered Job. So instead, the book examines the idea of righteousness, and specifically, it it looks into this idea that, that our righteousness is not tied to worldly prosperity and comfort. In fact, Job is not even on trial in this book. It kind of seems like he is because he's the one having to defend himself all the time, but Job's not the one on trial. The book opens with with the statement that he's innocent, right? He's blameless and righteous. God himself declares Job blameless and righteous in the first chapter. Job's, Job's goodness is not in question. His integrity is in question. The question is, if you take away all the things that have made his life pleasant and comfortable, will he still be faithful? That's the question. Right? That's what, what Satan means when he says, does Job fear God for nothing? God, look at all the stuff you've given him. He's got, a, he's got a wonderful house. He's wealthy beyond belief. He has all these children. He's married. He's got everything you could possibly want. Of course he's righteous. Of course he's faithful. Of course he doesn't complain about you. You've bought his loyalty. That's the accusation. God is the one on trial in the book. Satan is questioning God's policies as the creator of the universe. So he challenges God, right? The, the, the challenge is, listen, this whole policy you have of blessing the righteous is a bad idea, right? It creates false righteousness. They're only behaving themselves because you reward them. If you take away the reward, they'll stop. They aren't really good at heart. So that challenge comes from Satan. But the way that Job finally gets God to speak to him directly is by attacking God from the other direction, right? So while Satan is challenging God's policy of, of blessing righteous people, Job attacks God's policy of allowing righteous people to suffer, right? You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. In other words, people in this book are mad about God for literally everything. There's no easy answer here. He can't answer one question because the answer to one question is the problem that's causing another one. But the reality is both of these attacks are are just wrong and baseless, right? God doesn't actually bless righteous people constantly. We all know that. But in addition, God does not always let righteous people suffer. It's never as simple as that. Nonetheless, there is this tension there. And God's response is is not to answer either one, in all honesty. His response is to say, look who you're talking to. Do you really think, do you really think that you are in a position to be asking this question? And we do not like that answer. 
The central message of the book is actually that we have to trust in God's wisdom and we have to trust that God's ways are the best ways and that his decisions about how to run the world are better than ours would be. We have to do that instead of trying to figure out why God does things the way he does because very often we are trying to understand something that is beyond our comprehension. See, when people demand an answer to the problem of evil, when they demand that God answer their questions about why he runs the world the way he does, what you're really doing is, is you're saying, in effect, that you are just as capable of running the world as God is. You can evaluate his performance. And it just doesn't work that way. We want God to be accountable to us. But he's just not. And the reality is, you know, that, that God, God likes to bless and prosper people who are righteous, but he doesn't guarantee it. And, and likewise, God takes the sin of the wicked seriously and he will deal with it, but he will deal with it in his own good time and it won't always happen when or how we want. See, the, the core thing here is that, that God's identity and God's character, who God is, they have ramifications in the world. But those ramifications are worked out according to God's wisdom, and we don't like that. We would rather them be worked out according to our wisdom. And so plenty of people just reject the idea of religion altogether because they don't like the answer they're getting, right? And there is, deep down, an underlying assumption that we could do better. We could do better without God. We could make better choices. Because you can't question someone's, ability, someone's decisions about how to run something unless you genuinely think you have a better answer. And so people, people ask that question. They don't like the answer they get. They choose not to believe in God or they leave the faith. But then there are, there are plenty of people who, who are Christian and who lean way too hard into this idea in a different way, right? They'll come back and they say, well, you know what? Yeah, it's actually true that if you're suffering, uh, it must be because you deserve it, right? You must have sinned in order to be suffering like this. Maybe you didn't pray hard enough. Maybe you weren't praying the right way. Maybe it's because you went to the Baptist church instead of the Methodist church. I don't know. But all this really is, is, is an idea of false righteousness. It's actually the very thing that Satan is accusing Job of doing. Because if you believe that someone who is suffering is suffering because they deserve it, then it follows that you also believe that anything good happening in your life is happening because you were righteous. And I'll bet that once you fall into that trap, you are doing good things because you expect to be rewarded. And you won't find those ideas anywhere in the gospel. In fact, the gospel promises suffering and hardship for people who are faithful to God. It's pretty clear about that. Jesus tells his disciples over and over again, your life will be harder because you follow me. Instead, the gospel teaches that God is present with us in the midst of suffering. That God suffers alongside us. 
He doesn't just sympathize with our pain. He empathizes with it. He feels it. Let me tell you, when I was dropping my daughter off and she was saying, Daddy, take me home, I suffered with her in that moment. And that is a pale shadow of what we're talking about when it comes to God feeling our suffering. Think of the story of Lazarus, right? When he, he weeps, when he sees the grief of the people who have buried Lazarus, right? He knows he's about to raise the man from the dead. He's not crying because his friend is dead. He's crying because of the pain he sees in people he loves. God suffers with us. He's present with us in the midst of that. The Bible never promises that we get to live without suffering just because we're righteous. And it also doesn't promise that we get to, to, to question God and demand answers from him. In fact, the very first sin in the Bible is Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What are they doing? They're trying to become like God. Right? They're trying to reject God's definition of good and evil and substitute their own. We're still doing that today. That's what we're doing when we're demanding answers from God. We're saying, look, God, I think you've got it wrong. I've got a better answer. Unless you can explain this to me, then I think you're wrong. But our approach is backward. God's not accountable to us. We're the ones who have to answer to him. We can't always understand what God is doing. And you know, there are times in, in the Bible where God actually does explain what he's up to to people, but they're kind of few and far between. More often than not, God just asks his people to trust him, to take the leap of faith, to trust that he is good, he does want what's best for us, he does care for us, and to accept that sometimes that will mean hardship in this life. And that's not the answer that we want, but it's the answer God gives. And so God's expectation is that you live a righteous life when you're having a good time and during the bad times. Trusting that suffering in this life is not a sign of sin or, or anything else. It's just a sign that something has gone wrong in the world at large and you're living through it. And you just have to trust that God's ways are the best ways. In fact, Jesus' life actually demonstrates this perfectly, right? Jesus did not do what we would have done. His path to victory was public humiliation, beatings, torture, and death. That's how he overcame evil in the world. Not by striking it down, but by letting evil do its worst to him. And his disciples never got it, by the way, right? Peter tries to kill someone in the garden when they come to arrest him. He doesn't get what's going on. His ways are not our ways. And God still chooses to love us even though we constantly rebel against him, right? That's not what we would choose. The amount of mercy and grace that God extends to us is not what we would do in his position. So at its core, Job is a book that says, God runs the world and you do not. And you should be incredibly grateful for that. Because there is no way we would do as good of a job as he does. And the moment we begin thinking otherwise, that's when we start questioning all these things we don't understand. God runs the world 
His ways are the best ways. And we simply have to trust that everything he says is good and true, even if we don't always understand it. Thanks be to God.